you're listening to the Voice of Insurance podcast, produced in association with Advantage Go. Release your underwriters to underwrite with Advantage Go's underwriting platform. One of the only real qualifications for my job is to be good at getting on with all sorts of people. I really couldn't do it if I was too cranky or too shy. In contrast, some of the people I talk to aren't natural communicators, but as their careers have progressed and they've had to take on more public-facing duties within their organisations, they've been forced to learn that particular skill. Happily, today's guest is an insurance professional who is a natural-born communicator. Because of this, I think this episode contains way more content per minute than the average. Simon Wilson is president of Markel International and is responsible for a business that operates in 13 countries and counting on three continents. It's also incredibly diverse, spanning micro-retail all the way to the biggest ticket London market wholesale business placed at Lloyd's. Simon's comfortable talking on an extremely broad range of topics, from specialty classes and the effects of the hard reinsurance market and the discipline of writing netlines in dislocated markets, to casualty reserving and comparative strategies for global business building and the development of highly specialised industry vertical niches. We even dissect ESG and the opportunities that vast swathes of green investment are throwing up for the industry. It's a breathless encounter that rattles for an enormous amount at a very fast pace. Simon's clearly enjoying his role, and his intelligence, insights, passion and excellent humour shine through every minute of this episode. Listen on, I think you'll be impressed, and you'll learn an awful lot. Enjoy the podcast. Simon, welcome to The Voice of Insurance. Mark, thanks for having me. I'm a big fan of the show, so it's great to be sat in the seat. Oh, fantastic. Why don't you just give us a quick introduction to who you are and sort of how you managed to get where you are today? Yeah, thanks, Mark. I've been in insurance now for just over 20 years. I joined from Deloitte Consulting at the start of my career, but then moved into Lloyd's of London. And I was working with Julian James, Lord Peter Levine back in the early noughties, and really involved in what they were doing in terms of utilising that international network of offices that much more. Um, on the back end of that, China, Asia was a big theme at the, in the late It was 90s. opening new licenses was certainly a big theme of that period, wasn't it? New licenses, new offices, and new, actually sort of new structures for Lloyd's in a way. If you remember Lloyd's China, it had to be- a, And then there was Rio on the other side of the world as well, obviously around the same time. Precisely. So we were doing a bit of that. We, we managed to get China down and, and that off and running. And then I was invited to go and run Lloyd's Asia out of Singapore. So I spent four years there, which was a phenomenal time of growth on that platform and a great place to be from sort of 2007 through. 2010, when the world was in economic crisis, you know, the financial crisis was going on. Singapore seemed to be shielded from that to some degree, just because of the nature of the growth in that region of the world. So fascinating to be over there, but also see the London market, because you're working for Lloyd's, from a different angle. So I thought that was a really interesting time to be there. And in the process, met William Stoven, who was the president of Markel International at the time, that Markel had a syndicate out there. And I was invited to come to this organization and start developing our international platform. And that's really what I've been doing for the last, what, now 13 years in total. So it's been a bit of a run. Just before we hit the record button, we were talking about perhaps this podcast could be seen from the outside as being a bit of a London market podcast. It's not my intention, but it's obviously I am based in London, so it's easy to have that bias. But Markel has always been Markel International. It's not been Markel London, but obviously London's been a part of it. How's the market at the moment? I mean, we've obviously got this hard reinsurance market, which is a global phenomenon. But how's it affecting everything? So right now, we're just over a year on from when the Russian invasion of Ukraine happened. And I think going all the way back to that, I think we knew then that certain specialty lines were going to be under a lot more pressure in that reinsurance world. So there's no doubt there's a hard reinsurance market, whether you look at property, certainly in those first party lines. I think that's a definite phenomenon. But we knew about that. I think the market knew about that. It was well signaled and, and you could hear from 
this time last year onwards, certainly with around Monte Carlo, what was going to happen? Now, we don't write an awful lot of property at Markel International, so it hasn't affected us on that side of things. But certainly, those kind of first party lines, marine, energy, you know, anything that has war involved in it somewhere, yeah. I think we've seen that hardening have an impact on what we're doing. But from a strategic perspective, reinsurance is part of what we do. But when you're an organization with a pretty big balance sheet, I see this as what tactics do we need to apply in certain areas of the business in order to be quite successful? And that really juxtaposes with what we're trying to do strategically, which is over a much longer period of time. There's areas that are not connected to reinsurance in that. And I'd, I'd really talk about the internationalization of the platform. And when you spoke about Markel International, which was really a London market business, I think that's a very erudite thing I suppose to at least it was a statement of intent that was sort of M-I-N-T, Mint, I used to sort of abbreviate it to. It was a statement, we didn't say Markel London, did it? But it probably was de facto quite pretty much Lloyd's and a few other things. Correct. And, and what we've tried to create is the international operations of Markel. So it's kind of like leading with that Markel because customers everywhere talk about buying their insurance from Markel rather than Mint or Markel International. So I'm really quite hot on that at the moment, saying like it's one brand effectively that we're trying to sell. But that London entity, and what we did have in addition to London was the Reg Brown 702 syndicate, which had gone out to the UK regions for a little while. Yeah. So there was a UK regional business, but it was relatively small. It was kind of 30, 40 million dollars, less than 10% of what we did at Markel International as an organization. You look at it now and we have more people and a significant portion of our premium that are coming from outside the London market, even though London has grown during that time period. So strategically, I think we're continuing to develop that international platform. We are nowhere near finished doing that. So what's the balance at the moment of, you know, what's London, non-London within what you do? I think it's about two thirds London and a third non-London, if you will. So it's growing. That's gone from 5% non-London up to about, you know, 33, 35%. So do you have an idea, a sort of plan? At, you know, I mean, obviously you'll let it take its course, I presume, but you've got an idea of what is the ideal balance? I must say that the London market's grown far more successfully than maybe we were expecting it to, not least because of the hard market and some of the things that we've done here. So in my mind, the balance between that local business and, and really what we're aiming for is business that does not leave either regional or country borders when we're yeah. focused on building out that platform. Ideally, I'd say it'd be at least 50-50 and maybe slightly in favour of that retail platform being kind of 60-40. And I say that because the London market is necessarily quite volatile and, and you need to pick your moments and your areas of your business when you want to be specialised. So being able to trade and actually to say no from time to time is incredibly important. And if you've got the ballast that sits with that sticky regional retail business, gives you much more opportunity to make those decisions. What I'm not saying is that we're massively opportunistic within London. I don't think that's the case. But what I am saying is that you have to be quite sanguine about what's really happening in the market and, and when's the right suppose, time to yeah, go hard. So you don't set out to be opportunistic, but if you're sitting in what's the ultimate excess market, then opportunities come and then they also do go away as well. <laughs> Completely. And if you're not able to pull back and put You've your... You've got to hit them when the they're there, you know. Absolutely. And I do think you need to stay in the market as well so that when the opportunity does come, you're able to take advantage of it. Because so you can't just ramp balance. it up overnight because it takes time to get people in. And get, reputation and, you know, yeah. sort of relationship and all of that. Comes you can't really that. be in and out of a class and say, because brokers remember, or they forget that now you, you were out of that, you were in it, and now you're out of it. And then are you in it or out of it anymore? And they can't remember. Precisely. So that, <laughs> so that was what we talked about, sort of about the international kind of like, why are we doing it? I think that balance of volatility and the ability to get closer to customers is right at the heart of what we're trying to do here. Yes, so I suppose that, that local strategy, is, it sounds very sensible because of whenever you talk to a very London-focused wholesale broker, they say, oh, what the hell are they all doing out there out in Singapore? They're just 
undercutting themselves, they're all competing themselves, but saying no way, you're, you're going for business that would never come anywhere near London in the first place. Definitely. And I think a good example of that, I would say, so Singapore, I think there's that argument always about, well, where is it? Because the big global brokers can place it in their hubs. Well, they choose where they want to place their business to a great degree. And I don't want to force the larger brokers to sort of like, you must do it here or you must do it there. I think we need to be able to catch the ball if, as you were, wherever it goes. A bigger example is really somewhere like Germany. And if you want to sell small, micro, even medium-sized business in Germany, it's crucial. Number one, you speak German. That's kind of critical. You understand the German legal system and the products that those customers want. And typically, therefore, having a claim service on the ground and a service center on the ground speaks German, understands German, is really critical. We don't do that well in London. I think there's a reason where our European Union business has not been strong, whether it's linguistic capability, desire to go and sort of like understand those local markets on the ground. I don't think we do it particularly well from London. We do masses of things brilliantly, but that's not one of them. I think that's reflected. Oh, you're absolutely right. And obviously I was working for a Spanish insurance broker with an office in London. Recently on the podcast, we just had uh, Luis Munoz Rojas, of one of the founders of Dual. And of course, the whole philosophy of that is you want to go after this, of being Spanish, of course, use a ham analogy. He said, right. look, if you're just going to sit in London, we get the ham and you get the bones. You know, you get to crunch on bones. But if you want your fair share of ham, then you've got to come down here. Well, that's the Spanish. When I go back to my German analogy, actually. And the first time I, I sat There's more sausages or something. <laughs> no, well, it could be, actually, taking that analogy on. But more interesting than that, I was having dinner many years ago with the, the leader of our German and European operations, Frederick Wolf. And he took me to a restaurant. He said, ah, here's the wine list. We're going to go for Riesling. And I, I kind of reflected on my experience with Riesling here in the UK. And it, it wasn't great. I think Liebfraumilch might have been the... Uh, I suppose it was a, sort of a staple of the 1970s when, when the UK was just discovering wine. Precisely. And I go there and we had dinner and this wine was remarkable. And then Frederick looked at me and said, well, do you think we send our best wine overseas? <laughs> and think of that as an insurance market kind of analogy at the same time. So the best German business, last time I looked, Allianz was doing pretty well in its they German well, home market. And there is a reason for that. And I suppose, is it generally going to be higher frequency, low individual premium type business or smaller entities, I presume? Our average premium in the German market is something like 600 or 700 euros. So that's completely different. You can't write that bespoke one by one, can you? You cannot. And, and we may well come on to sort of like another key strategic theme on this in, in terms of operational excellence and our complete obsession with process, customer journeys, you know, all these types of things which become so important when you're in a retail environment, learning from that. And digitalization is a, is a very trendy thing in London at the moment and APIs and all the rest of it. If you don't do those things on the ground in those territories when you're selling premium for that level... You don't survive. So it's a a different mentality. I should should disclose now that I'm a customer of Markel for media liability insurance because I was required to get some insurance because I became a supplier of somebody. I was doing a podcast for them for a commercial arrangement. Yes, and so well, I need to see your insurance certificate. You need a million pounds of insurance. Well, I can't tell you how. And I, I got it from you guys, this, so thank you. Know? And it was a seamless, and it was a digital process, and it was good. Very good. Well, excellent. I'm obviously glad to hear it. And you are absolutely our kind of target market, Mark. So it's, well, uh, I, I think I'm, I'm a very good risk. So I think, it's, you know, that's money in the bank for you, Simon. Win-win. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you haven't earned all of it yet. I think I'm still on risk until whatever. I think it was in the autumn. You can bank it all. You can release that premium into your profit stream anytime soon. Well, good to hear. <laughs> So back on this reinsurance hard market, and that's where we started this question, by the way, all those specialty classes that you're in, has it meant there's a less of an availability of reinsurance or it's at a price point, do you think, goodness me, that's uneconomical and therefore I'm going to retain more, but then now I'm going to retain more, I mean, I'm going to reduce my line sizes out in the insurance side. Is it a constraint on growth in any sense or how has it changed the balance of what you're doing? Sorry to interrupt in mid-flow, but this is just a reminder that you could be advertising right here, right now. 
and getting your message directly into the ear of key decision makers in the insurance industry. And you'll be doing it while they're absolutely in listening mode. The Voice of Insurance has just run through 300,000 downloads. If each of those had had a 60-second ad in them, that would make 83 hours of talking to the industry for a fraction of the cost of alternative media. The podcast is the medium of the future, and so is audio advertising. Contact me on mark at thevoiceofinsurance.com and I'll do everything I can to get you started. Yeah, so I think there's a couple of key areas there, and I, I won't talk to property because that's not sort of our bag so much, but those specialty lines, I talked about like war, for example, before. People know that there's the Russia, Ukraine, Belarus, rub exclusion, which is effectively reinsurers saying, look, we're not going to reinsure for risks in that kind of area. And that, for us, means things like our war on land, political violence, terrorism account, for example, and marine war as well. I think that's another good example of it. Suddenly, that reinsurance in that particular region isn't available in the marketplace by and large. So suddenly you go from something where everyone's had this wonderful duvet of everything's reinsured to that particular area of the world, that's not. So you've got a choice to make, either that I don't want to play in that market anymore, or I do want to play in the market, but the stakes are that much higher because you're running net. So I think what's fascinating about it, Mark, in that area is two things, really. Number one, once you've got the duvet and everyone's got it, and one of my colleagues in the US have called it like the happy hard market where everything was just easy and people could just enjoy stamping slips and everything else. Suddenly that goes away and you're underwriting again. So I think the quality of what you do, whether that be through data, experience, the relationships that you have, your positioning in the market, that all comes to the fore because you're playing for higher stakes and you know there's a lot more on the downside. I think the other bit is in terms of constraining growth, well, actually net premium, net earned premium, suddenly goes up. Because if you're prepared to take more of that risk net, you are getting paid for it. And you've got to get that balance right between what you're prepared to lose and what you're getting paid for. it. And I think that makes the underwriting experience at the moment that much more interesting, frankly. And we'll see who does well and who doesn't do so well in that environment. You're really going to see which underwriting organizations are better than others and better managed than others and better diversified, one presumes, as well. Yeah, and you talk about constraints on growth. So the constraint is really how much are you prepared to risk, you know, because the growth is there. And as we were describing earlier, there's also growth happening in many, many places in the world that isn't really reliant upon the reinsurance because we're writing small lines of business there where we write it effectively net anyway. So I don't see this as a constraint on growth. I do see it as a factor whereby we really have to put some thought into what risk we're prepared to take. And I think that's healthy for London. So if you think about reinsurance, a little bit like interest rates in the marketplace, having super cheap reinsurance that everybody gets, it doesn't feel right. That can't last forever. And I think we're just getting to a point now where this is a normalization. It's more differentiated as well that Better underwriters get better reinsurance deals, which then help differentiate them in the marketplace and they can get better deals and offer better terms. Precisely. Whereas in a soft market, that they're just backing everybody, you feel, and that everyone gets the same terms anywhere. I agree. And you do say it. What we haven't spoken about is more on those casualty and the professional. Well, you're not really, you said you're not really property underwriter. Obviously, you're definitely a special underwriter, and that's fairly obvious it's had a direct effect there. Has it been any spillover in small casualty lines, obviously, which, you know, which are real core lines for you guys? So I do th- I think reinsurance generally has got a bit more expensive. And I think, you know, terms are a little bit more restricted. It's kind of a reinsurance hard market. So I think there is spillover. I don't think it's as acute in professional. Certainly, we haven't seen that in professional or casualty. And um, what we are seeing is where people have pulled back a little bit in the property DNF space, property cat space, which is, you know, you can see why that's occurring. They're still under pressure to grow. 
And I think what happens there is that they shift their attention to cyber and casualty and professional lines. And, and I can understand that dynamic in the market. Personally, when I look at what's happening in casualty and some of those larger professional risks, I think we all as a marketplace need to be a little bit conscious of what is really going on underneath that market as well. So I'm not entirely sure that just shifting a property strategy to a casualty, which I'm not saying everybody's doing, but there is a sort of a, a trend towards it. I do think we need to do that with our eyes open as a marketplace because there's some risk out there. It's just not getting into some sort of creme brulee territory where it's hard on the property cat and the specialty and then a bit soft everywhere else. I haven't heard the creme brulee Well, that was, but... was coined by Benfield in about 2006 and that the post-KRW right. market. I remember... I was the editor of a reinsurance magazine. I stuck a creme brulee on the front cover. It was quite entertaining. I wrote a few editorials about it because it was quite a soft market for capital then. Of course, we had all those huge startups and all sorts of things. And it was just a different dynamic, but it was obviously still hard on top. Yeah. But I do think that hard market for capital has changed as well because the interest rates have gone up. And I think investors now are looking at it and thinking, where do I want to put my money? Because the London specialty market or the ENS market over in, in the United States it's quite risky business. You know, there's a lot going on there. It's like, do I want to put my capital into that? Or do I want to diversify that capital away and do something else with it? And I think at the moment, we're in a bit of a fluctuating position around capital as to where that wants to go. And so yeah, it's but to go back on that on the casualty, it's not made casualty soft because it's a differentiator. So we're shifting our capital from property cat exposure, which we know that everyone is restricted. And obviously, some of the specialty exposure, warlike exposure, suddenly displaced into casualty and made it soft. It's actually made everything relatively hard. Uh, correct. But I do think what, what we need to look out for in casualty, and no doubt we'll, we'll come onto it, is this social inflation piece, especially what we see in the US. And, and, and what happens in the US first might not happen to the same degree across the world, but there are certainly within the kind of Anglo-Saxon territories where you've got common law and the rest of it, you do see that beginning just to happen in places in and around the world. So I think before we all get super excited about, you know, oh, casualty or cyber is a great opportunity and, and all those types of things is looking at some of those US awards that we see coming through from time to time. And we don't write a huge amount of US casualty here, but obviously being connected to my US colleagues, you do hear what's happening on the ground out there. These are claims that are occurring in years of account 17, 18, maybe into 19. Yes. They're not the claims that are coming from 2021, 20, 22, but I don't see social inflation suddenly disappearing because COVID's finished. In fact, probably in all likelihood, the opposite. You're talking about higher interest rates. Obviously, that's got to be good for someone writing four or five-year duration business. It's got to be a factor now that we're finally getting back to risk-free returns of you know, four or five percent. I remember a presentation from Bronick Masiada back in the early teens, I think you probably call that, where he, when the interest rates had just gone down to almost zero. Yeah. And he described that as almost like a 2005 cat event. He did. Every yes. year. And you were like, you know, that's the income that's not coming through. And we've had that for what, 10, 12 years. And also it has a notional increase in capital. Of course, we're now the, we're on that opposite effect of the notional decrease in people's capital that's obviously flowing through their balance sheets right now and probably will start to go in reverse at some point. This so year. that compounding of, of those, you know, we carry quite a lot of publicly traded equities at Markel, a little bit like Berkshire Hathaway, but we obviously do have a big bond portfolio as well. So we do get a benefit from that because we hold them long term. But what I would say on the capital front, because everybody says, well, you've got higher interest rates now, therefore you can write to a higher combined ratio. I kind of challenge that a lot, frankly, because the investor is getting four points on risk-free treasury bonds. So I kind of see what we need to achieve as an industry as above that four points, what do we need to be delivering to, to investors in order for them to, to have a reasonable return for the risk that they're running? So if it was zero before, 
let's just say you add 10 onto that. So you need to do 10. Well, if you've got four points, our return on capital can't still be 10. It needs to move from that. Because it needs to be plus. It yeah. needs to be plus. And, and that can deviate depending on where you're sitting in the market. But we do need to achieve more, I think, in this environment than we do previously. And you only have high interest rates. Well, they're still negative. They're still lower than inflation. So you only get them because you have inflation, which is obviously going to feed into claims of inflation anyway. So you can't get something for nothing. Exactly. So it's all, you know, all of these things like, like come to one and it makes the industry really fascinating because it's not just a combined ratio play. There's a cost of capital going on in the background. Yeah, you still have to make an underwriting profit all the time, really, Precisely. don't you? It, you do. it doesn't really work any other way. Not long term. No. Never has done, never will do. You've already mentioned this, but adverse development. I was looking at the Markel Group annual report and there was a bit of extra reserving there. Is that a worry? I mean, there's coming from those years and, and of course, those are the more mature years, what, 17, 18, 19. Again, what's behind that, do you think? Is that, is that just social inflation feeding through properly into numbers now? And, and is that therefore a worry for 21, 22? So what we've done in those accounts is that we've seen, I think what you describe it as almost a, a frequency of severity in US casualty lines of business. So what I mean by that is you go into COVID and you've written the premium at prices which where you didn't have a big inflationary environment and you, social inflation was beginning to be spoken about, but the impact of that wasn't really seen. You then go into COVID, which is a strange time where the courts clog up a little bit. So yeah, not a lot happens. You come out the other side and the courts go into overdrive in two ways is that lots more cases are going through. And those cases which seem to be settling at, say one settled at 10, is now going at more than 10 frequently. So you've got a more severe loss than you'd seen pre-COVID is now becoming sort of the norm, I think, in a lot of those US courts. And that's happening quite a lot because the US court system is, is definitely open and people are really going in and utilizing it now. So we've looked at that and said, well, yeah, those years, 19 and prior, we priced that business at this rate. We're now seeing some of those court cases come through. All of that reserving is being on IBNR because we're just seeing a trend coming through and we want to get ahead of it. What we've seen since 2019, so 2021, 2022, is that hard market condition. So we've had a lot of rate coming through in those years. We haven't taken credit for that rate because we haven't seen what's happening in the court system longer term. So that's something that we're keeping a watching brief on. You don't just take because you think that 2021, 22 are going to be brilliant. Let's just put that into the back years and it'll all be fine in the round. I think what we've done is like, let's reserve this early. Let's always, as we always do at Markel, get ahead of it. And we'll see what 2021, 20, 22 brings as we and go And I suppose those older years, base prices start to feed. They do feed into your new pricing. Your actuary's not going to let you get away with pricing below what you already know about 2019 and prior. That that's not going to go away, is it? And they're going to have to assume that that's your new base. Exactly. And by the way, it's not just Markel. Markel's a big writer, but we're on contracts where there's lots of the marketplace that are on there. I'm certain that peers will be looking at their back years and, and taking a view on what needs to happen in the current year underwriting. So it's not just our actuaries, and they're absolutely on that, but I'm sure other people's pricing conditions but are But it's not sort of alarm bells. Situation. It's something that you feel that we're able to get ahead of this trend. There's probably rate in there. But obviously, we have to keep an eye on it. And obviously, you can't release anything until you can release it. And that's casualty underwriting. And that's the <laughs> difference, you see, between that sort of first party when you know really quickly and that sort of longer term stuff where the marketplace is a bit more like steering a ship than it is a Formula One motor car type thing. So you've got to be really on it, but you've got to understand it. It's a long period of time. And, and actually, the tail on some of these risks is pretty long as well. So I think you've got to be in it and be committed to it for, well, for long know, periods. I'm a former casualty broker. And you know, you, sometimes you think, well, you just read a liability policy. 
it is just a big blank check with about 20 exclusions at the bottom, and that's it. It's almost an invitation to any plaintiff lawyer to say, well, can you find a way of making us pay a claim that isn't excluded? And it's only through like <laughs> long periods of time and experience that you can manage your way through that because it is not a straightforward environment, I think, and, and people that have been in that market for a long time can attest to it. Absolutely. In terms of Markle International sitting within the group, it sounds like you want to be growing more internationally and not London, but obviously London, you will take growth when it's available to you. And obviously it's available right now yep. and it's good conditions. What bits of Markle International need to be built that haven't been built? Or is it already built and you just need to bulk it out? There's a bit of that, right? So we are in the UK regions. My organization, we've got three offices in Canada. We're across the European Union and we've got Asia at the moment. I'll give you an example of India, for example. So I think we might be the only player on the Lloyd's India platform at the moment. But I went there in 2019. There are two people there. Deepika Mathur is leading it, the wonderful lady that runs our operation out there. But there were two people in the office. I went back there nine months ago. There were 22 people in that office. So we've invested in these offices in terms of talent, in terms of people in that market access. So bulking out and scaling those operations. In India, slightly different. But in Germany, when you're doing six, 700 euro policies, you know, it takes time to scale those things. But when you get it going, it's like a machine. So we want to replicate people scale in all of the territories in the moment. I think it's 13 countries that we currently trade in. So it could be a lot more. I think so. I mean, if you look at some of our competitors, you know, when they've been building out these sort of significant international platforms over time, I think 12 or 13 sounds like a relatively small number. And we do have plans this year to take ourselves into the Australian market. So you'll see Markel set up down in Australia. It's a big market for Lloyd's players, I think. It's a litigious market and all the rest of it. But we feel that those market conditions, it's heavily broke. I think that's a good thing. We're an intermediated business by and large. There's a lot of casualty and professional lines business down there as well. And I think we, we can go down there and make a difference. So Australia will be that new territory that we go into this year. But we've been patient. You know, I spoke about being here for 13 years. Germany took us probably six or seven years to get to a degree of scale that were, were there. Spain, likewise, actually. Espan Manzano down in Spain yeah. is doing a terrific job out of Madrid. We've got a Barcelona office. But it's now definitely stands on its own two feet. We're very proud of it. But we had to give it time in order to build the foundations. I think if you go to these new countries and go all guns blazing, more often than not, you know, you don't understand the culture, you don't understand what you're dealing with, and you end up getting the bottom draw business. That, you're you know, not going to get the best the showing, I can tell you that. I mean, how many American cars do you see on German roads? I mean, they're not many. And I think there's a, there's a reason for it. So you have to become local if you're truly going to be trusted by that market. And would you say that when you're going out to these markets, you'd say, well, is it a USP that we're a really great casualty underwriter? We've got lots of really good casualty products that we can implant here. Is that the USP? I think you go in there and you say, like, well, what is the requirement from the customers in that territory? And, I, and I'll give you an example. I keep coming back to Germany, but it's just one that's on the top of my mind at the moment. If you want to write professional indemnity in Germany, You've got two options. You either do it on a current basis or you don't write it at all. And you say that to a London market professional indemnity underwriter, and they, but we wow. do claims made here. And it's like, you know, we don't do it that yeah, way. So what's occurring? Sorry, mate. <laughs> yeah, you need to become kind of German in your mindset there. So I think it's the ability to understand what the local market requires in our product. So we've got product expertise, but we haven't got local product expertise. So we kind of get into the mind of the local environment. The other thing that we do, and I think the lens of sector specialists. So what I mean that is industry sectors. So here in the UK, we're a big provider of coverage for care institutions. And I, and I don't mean by that a lot of elderly care homes. I mean, there's a huge variety of caring institutions that we have in the UK, likewise in other territories. And when we talk about operating in that sector, we don't talk about we're well, being in the insurance sector, here's your product. 
we really think about being in the care sector and we have consultants in that sector who go in and actually sort of risk manage care institutions. We have a whole group of people who are, you know, sort of quite close to government in terms of what's going to happen next within sort of legislation around it. And then we have an insurance product suite of offerings. So when the care organization comes to us and say, I'd like to buy insurance, because that's what they know they need to buy. We don't start telling it, well, you could have a deductible of 25 grand on your professional indemnity policy, because that's not the language which those customers speak in. So when we go to a new territory, we think about how our products might play in those territories. But we also identify industry sectors where we think we can make a difference and really try to understand those sectors in detail before we get there. That's quite funny. Now with all the insurtechs, we're talking about embedded insurance. That's pretty embedded to me that you know, you're going into a vertical and not just adding insurance to something. Precisely. And I think if you just say, I sell insurance, I think it turns people off. We work in financial services, so we should be providing a service to people who need risk transfer. If you think about it that way, the customer becomes really, really important. I think too often, we try to shove a product because you just get used to it, buy this because that's what we sell. It's like, well, why would anyone be interested in that if you haven't really researched and understood them? This is good. Well, I'm hoping the very unlikely event that I have to make a claim on my media policy, you'll have lots of media experts as well. I do hope so. <laughs> they can give, you know, libel lawyers and other people who can help me out. There we go. <laughs> when you're looking at your big spreadsheet or whatever it is, and you're thinking about all those territories in the world, where are your sort of star pupils at the moment? And you think, wow, I'm so pleased with what's going on there. I really want to back them to the hill and I'm going to stretch their target now because I think they're going so well. Uh, this is where we can really double up. Yeah, this might not be the time to tell the people that don't know about it already. <laughs> but um, I have to say, so one example here is Asia. You know, talked yeah. about being there in that region for a long time. Um, for a number of years, we struggled to really get going in Asia because there was that kind of London, Asia market kind of back and forth between people. And I, and I think we just hadn't committed fully to being in the region. We've been really successful doing that in the European Union, in the UK. But in Asia, for whatever reason, it was just like, eh, it's just not quite there. The rates are a bit slim and, and all the rest of it. And we changed the structure a little bit, probably five or six years ago now, whereby the P&L for Asia, actually it's their product P&Ls, and they, it doesn't matter if you're in London, in our Asian operations, it all goes back to the marine team or the, the energy team or, or, or whatever. So you suddenly have this interest and this peaked interest, both from a financial perspective, but also from a human being perspective, because you're all part of the same team. Let's make it as good as we can be. And we've seen premium grow there from about $15 million across the whole thing five years ago. Last year, it was about 115. So it becomes much more material in terms of what we're doing. And, and that's Asia. You know, we're talking about India, Singapore, to some degree, you know, China and Malaysia, and soon to come Australia being added to that sort of Asia Pacific region. So I feel that we've only scratched the surface on that Asia opportunity. And we're only selling about four or five products in anger over there at the moment. I think we can add to that product suite. And we're just getting deeper and deeper with the broker relations that we've got out there. I would say in London, where we haven't been particularly good until about two years ago, we brought Andrew McMillan into the business about 18 months ago now. What we hadn't done is, is actually sort of gone out as Markel to the marketplace. We've typically been a individually really strong underwriters or underwriter-led teams, but we would be selling Rowan Davies in the energy team, for example, or our cyber offering will be going alone. What we're looking to do now is really go out as Markel. So it's kind of a united front and saying, we don't just sell individual products through the marketplace and to the brokers, but we're going there and say, actually, brokers, if you want to do things a little bit differently, we'll take a look at that and we'll have a look at doing things on that wider basis. So I do think, oddly, even though I've, I've pushed the international network, there's a huge amount more that we could be doing in London. I, and I think Markel has been spoken of as a bit of a sleeping giant over here. I feel as though we've woken up a little bit, but maybe not everybody has noticed that just yet, but they, they certainly will do. 
And how's your view of your Lloyd's business at the moment? Pretty good, I presume. Yeah, we really like Lloyd's for two reasons. Um, I give credit to John Hancock in that previous regime. It's like when things needed to be said, Lloyd's were probably the first movers in the world to say it. You know, this market is soft. It's not sustainable. That's guts to be able to go out there and say, we're not going to take this anymore. So at the time, that's difficult for a lot of people. I mean, you've got to do an awful lot more remediation work. It impacts people's sort of personal circumstances and occasion. And none of that is particularly nice. But Lloyd's saw that one through. So well done them. I think we've come to the other side of that now. And I talk to people like Patrick Tiernan on a regular basis. And I think what Patrick's doing is saying, what is the strategy of quite big insurance groups like Markel towards Lloyd's. What more could we do for that type of capital to make this place a little bit more attractive than it is at the moment? So I think that real listening ear that we're seeing from the corporation at the moment is a really good thing because it's only through that type of conversation that you can change things. But when I do look at Australia or Asia, we can get a really good team of people into Australia very quickly and not have to worry about having boards of directors down there and committee meetings and all the rest of it, we're able to get down there and start thinking about business from day one. And the reason we're able to do that is that Lloyd's have a license in order for us to go and do that. So why on earth would you go and have a ton of capital, lots of administration, and then the business gets 25% of your attention because you're doing all of this other stuff? Lloyd's allows you to go and access business from day one. And I think that's a huge benefit from being in that marketplace. It's very efficient. You don't have to end up with too many balance sheets all over the place. I know, and that frankly, because the finance department then just gets bigger and bigger and bigger. And what you want is the underwriting department and all your, sort of your and, operations. And, and, and you have stronger. to fly down and go to a board meeting every quarter and, and all, all the other things. And like, don't it. get me wrong. I mean, I, I really enjoy going to Australia, <laughs> but it's a long way. I did it a little while ago and it takes a while. You presumably, you'd rather go there and do a deal than go there and have to do a lot of compliance stuff. A hundred percent. And talk about the business that's going on there and how we can be better doing that. So I think what Lloyd's brings to us is a huge amount of opportunity internationally on the ground and stuff that we do in the marketplace here. And I think its ability to listen and change, I think, has gone up a few notches in recent years. On this distribution strategy, I mean, a lot of peers have done really well with Quotes and Bind. I know from my own experience, you've got some pretty good digital platforms because I used one myself. How far are you going into that and where do you think you can take it? Obviously, we've seen peers go even further to the point of algorithmic Lloyd syndicates. Is that something you could countenance at some point? So I think our experience as consumers just in the wider world is like, it's not good enough just to be like, oh, there's a man with a quill pen who's going to write something. You know, you can't do that anywhere anymore. And you certainly can't do that in an environment where it's retail and it's relatively small customers. You know, you need to be hyper efficient and very, very easy to do business with. So it goes without saying for me that a digitized workplace, our operations is front and center of things that we need to be investing in right now. So absolutely, we're focused on digitizing end to end. So whether it's APIs in London or it's, you know, attaching ourselves white label into other products, you know, in these sectors that we talked about, you know, so we will go and do that and be part of another organization. We'll just happen to be a product that people easily pick up off the back of it. So that's happening. Algorithmic underwriting is always like a, a strange term of phrase to me because it's like algorithms are just a set of rules that you apply against a set of circumstances and you go yes or no in some, some sense. I think what we mean by it, it almost feels when we say it about insurance, it's like some spaceship has just landed in the middle of London and it's just incredible. And, and so for me, the low cost rules-based syndicate that we've seen you know, yeah. done really well here, I don't think that's necessarily where we're going to go as Markel International, because I think what we need to be is kind of like the front end leading syndicate. I think if you try to do both things at the same time, that could be quite difficult, especially when you're trying to expand that international platform. So that's not for us. 
But what we do have sat in the group is Nafila, of course. And I think the Nafila approach is where we'll do more of that large scale follow market type underwriting in London. I think that they've got the appropriate skill set to be able to do that successfully. ESG, presumed, is massively on your desk now. And now it's become something that's become front and center. What's your thinking around it? Because as a senior manager, you've, you've got to deal with this. You know, we've got to deal with our own carbon emissions and the way we treat people and the way our government govern ourselves, but also far more importantly, of, of companies and entities and individuals that we insure around the world. Where do you even start with getting a strategy? And we all know we've got to have a strategy by the end of the year or something, haven't we? Yeah. And so I, I think, you know, ESG has become this acronym that, that's a bit of a catch-all. I, I think when people talk about it, it, it's mainly the E and the climate change element of it that people are really focused upon. I, I don't know if yeah, that's the question. I think, yeah, but obviously you've got to deal with all of them. But at the same time, yeah, the E is pretty massive. It's an enormous thing in its own right. So I'd probably my comments are really about that. Yeah, I think the S enough. and the G, I think, as an industry, we're solid on that. I think we've got a really good story to tell. I think at least with the G, you know, we're a regulated industry, so we've kind of sorted that. And well, with us over many years, perhaps in this country, certainly, you know, with modern day slavery declarations and all sorts of things, we're quite good well, at interrogating our suppliers. So hopefully we can give ourselves a reasonable yeah. tick in the box for that one. So the E side, yeah, we, is we're pending. <laughs> and I have to say, I mean, my perspective on this is that that particular topic of climate change, environmental situation is the single biggest topic of all of us, whether you're a senior manager, a member of society for the next generation. And we're seeing governments focus on it to that degree. I mean, I, I saw numbers come out the other day that from 2030, maybe before that, $4 trillion a year, every year into the future is going to be spent on infrastructure to improve the way in which we create energy. That is just mind-blowing. I don't even know how many zeros that is. You know, so we'll write it down. It's, it's a huge amount. And so for me, the matic that we see in the press is this whole idea about net zero. And I understand what that's talking about, but it, it does sound a little bit negative to me, if I'm being honest. I think sort of like zero, zero-sum game, all that type of stuff, it doesn't set my world on fire. What I really would like to be talking about as an industry and our role within that is how can we take this opportunity of the future, the future of the planet, and take that opportunity and do some really good things within it? And I think we need to change the narrative from we have to stop doing lots of things because I think the market will dictate that we necessarily stop those things because they won't be where the action is. We sit here today and I think a lot of the companies that are going to make a difference in the future in terms of green energy actually probably have a lot of history in not green energy. And I don't think you can separate those two things out particularly easily. If you're a graduate trainee, you're not going to go into the old carbon burning energy sector. It says someone's going to have to do it, but maybe we'll leave that to people whose beards are quite grey or just going to get greyer and greyer. And you would want to be in all the green stuff. I, mean, and I don't know if you were sort of coaching a nephew or some member of your family and they say, well, I've got these two options. What do you think? But I mean, people have their own view on that. And I mean, it seems pretty straightforward to me. So I think there comes a tipping point where the market just says, we're going to go in that direction and we're not going to go in that direction. And there's but no money over there anymore. Yeah. But for the time being, I think we do need to be alive to the fact that there are many, many territories on the planet whereby turning something off right now impacts society. And that's, that's just not realistic to no, I had expect that to prominent happen. Polish brokers on the show about 18 months ago. And I don't know the exact percentage of coal-fired electricity generation in Poland, but it's well over 50%. And you just can't do that. I mean, you, the hospitals need to work, right? 
And so what we're going to do as a business on this is commit significant resources over the next few years, identifying where we can go and make a difference because there's a specialty insurance market. We already do a decent chunk of renewable energy at the moment, but that is wind, onshore, offshore wind, and it's solar. That will be a big part of the future, but there are so many new areas that are coming on board. Battery storage would be an obvious one that you bring to the fore. I think some of these new nuclear facilities, we've got to understand it. And when I I spoke earlier about the way in which we've gone into the care sector in the UK, just as a microcosm, we've employed care specialists who are consultants to that industry. I think if you're going to be very successful in the renewable space, we're going to have to bring people that are complete experts, engineers, all these types of new capability into the industry so we can advise and provide a service on top of the insurance product that will be set in the middle of that. Do you think there's also, I mean, it's going to be an evolution in the product. We're seeing green clauses because I don't know if you have a coal-fired power station and it has a big breakdown, there's going to be betterment and other things, but we're not going to rebuild it as a coal-fired power station. We take the opportunity now to turn it into something Precisely. Green. And I think that is going to happen because that amount of money that is and going to And it might even by industry, law, it might not be allowable to be rebuilt yeah. as a coal-fired And how exciting is that, though? Is that, you, know, you sit here as an industry and saying, that's in front of you. What are you going to do about it? And then someone goes like, what's net zero? What's net zero? And I, I get that and I understand where it's coming from. But I'm trying to look five, six, ten years ahead and saying, well, this thing is going to change. And what we need to be doing, whether we're in London or wherever we are as an industry in the world, is making sure that we are playing a major part in allowing that change to occur. And I think it's a fascinating area, Mark. And I think what we know today, you throw $10 trillion at a problem and what we know today will probably disappear into the rearview mirror in a few years' time because there'll be some new things that come through science, which we couldn't even imagine a few years ago. And I do think actually that plays very well into the London insurance market because we've always been able to sort of like find solutions to that kind of problem. For new things. Yes, if we have lots of hydrogen in tanks everywhere, you know, we know it's quite explosive and quite nasty if it goes wrong, but we know that they're quite good at looking after it, but some things are bound to go wrong. But then again, that looks like a nice high volatile risk that probably London's quite good at getting a consortium together to to deal with it. To figure it out. And I do think, I tell you what, the other really exciting bit is that you will bring new people into this industry who haven't really considered it before. When When I mentioned about how excited we were about finding solutions to these new renewable problems around the building, People are willing to work extra hours in the building to go and start to find solutions to these issues. I'm interested in that as a human being, as well as an industry professional. The ripples in the pond go out to people that are at university at the moment. They hear that this is an industry that's right at the center of this kind of advancement in technology and all the rest of it, and new opportunities will be presented. And I think the look and feel of the marketplace will therefore change quite significantly in the next 10 years to meet that demand. As we start to address this problem, obviously, we've got some basics of reporting. It's a bit more of the block and tackle, more mundane end of it. Do you think we're going to be able to get to acceptable industry standards, a sort of accord standard of ESG scoring type systems? Because obviously, your own reinsurers are going to want to know what your score is today or whatever it is this quarter. And presumably, the brokers that deal with you are also going to want to do that. Your insurance brokers are going to know it. And everybody else, and so also investors who are buying Markel shares in the market or lending you money in the bond market or whatever it is. So it's permeating absolutely everything. Do you think we're going to get somewhere without having imposed on us? And obviously, we've had some, certainly the Net Zero Insurance Alliance, it seems to be an interesting forum, but they've already had friction within that because recently Munich Re just decided to pull out of it for different reasons. I'm probably sure for very good motives, but it sounds like it was competition concerns and antitrust concerns. But so you think we're ever going to sort this out? 
or we more likely to have it imposed well, upon us by regulator. I think it will be sorted out. I think that's probably that's probably <laughs> the point that you're raising. Yeah, but, but let's hope that we can be pragmatic enough to say, look, not everyone's going to agree on everything. But normally in these things, you have an eighty twenty where you say, actually, we all agree on those things there, and then the twenty can flex. The worry that I have at the moment with these scoring systems is. You look wonderful on one scoring system, then you apply something that's doing the same thing and you're, you're actually, it's a disaster. So you just don't have very much confidence in it. And you've done it with credit ratings over the years and still people prefer S&Ps to best or best to S&P, you know, and that's on a pretty objective set of criteria. So when there's something that's quite subjective, I think that's something where it probably will take a little bit of time, but I think we need to be quite pragmatic and be a bit 80-20 around it. Yeah, because certainly I remember some early days of modelling you know, you'd have a loss somewhere. One modeling firm would come up with a range of five to 10. And another modeling firm came out with 12 and a half to 17. Now they didn't even intersect. No. And I don't think they do that anymore. They, they have started to coalesce around a mean more these days yeah. because they've got far better, they're closer approximation to reality than they were. So I think this scoring or, you know, however we go about that and sort of that provides a kind of a, a foundation. But as I say, my focus is on how we can make an impact on the planet through the industry. That to me is way more exciting in terms of the challenge that we've got ahead of us over the next 20 years and probably beyond that than some of the more mundane things that need to be in place. But if we spend all of our energy and attention on that, we won't be able to solve the big problems. Yeah, Because it's really the new business opportunity that's more exciting. And I don't even know what the new business opportunity is because it's so vast. I know where some of the opportunities are and that's where we're investing our time at the moment. Simon, I've really, really enjoyed our talk. You know, I think you kind of broadened the topics from the first question, actually. Not to say you didn't answer the first question, but we got there in the end. But thank you so much for being so open, actually, and so expansive, I think, in the way you conducted this discussion. I've really enjoyed it. Yeah, likewise, Mark. It's great to talk about the industry. We're passionate about it and great to be on for the first time. Well, absolutely. And we have to book in a return visit sometime soon. Great stuff. Thank you very much. Well, I hope you enjoyed today's episode. If you did, don't forget to subscribe or leave a like or a review or recommendation on whatever podcast platform you used to access this programme. These really help get the word out. Before we go, just a quick reminder that advertising slots are available here and in other places in the Voice of Insurance podcasts. Podcasting is the fastest growing medium and attracts a high quality audience of key decision makers. It's also an intimate medium where you, the listener, are right in the room with me and the interview subjects. Needless to say, that means it's a great way of getting your message out directly to an audience because you know you've got their full attention. It's also very cost effective. So get in touch with Mark at thevoiceofinsurance.com to find out how you could be speaking directly to the industry. The Voice of Insurance is produced in association with Advantage Go. Release your underwriters to underwrite with Advantage Go's underwriting platform. Voice of Insurance is produced by me, Mark Gagan. Music was written by Anna Gagan and produced by Carlos Gagan. Check out more podcasts and written comment pieces at www.thevoiceofinsurance.com.